Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. For over a year, the world has watched Russia brutalize Ukraine. The siege of Mariupol. We heard the noise of the planes, of the bombs, but we didn't realize the destruction of the city. The massacre at Olenivka prison camp. If you're intent on committing a war crime against a group of people, history shows it's a precondition to dehumanize them. The experience of ordinary Ukrainians living through the war. It's almost 5 a.m. here. I can't sleep. It seems like no one is sleeping. Tortoise has covered many of these key moments, but in the past few months, one outrage has stood out. In March, the International Criminal Court issued an arrest warrant for Vladimir Putin and his Children's Rights Commissioner, a woman called Maria Lvova-Belova. The allegations were specific and striking. Putin and Lvova-Belova were accused of the mass abduction of Ukrainian children. Our reporter, Ian Birrell, started looking into this and soon came across one particular group of children. 31 kids taken from Mariupol, to Moscow. This week, on the slow newscast from Tortoise, Ian investigates what happened to them, where they went, and if they can ever be found. This is The 31, Ukraine's Stolen Children. Over to Ian. She was pulling my hand. She was trying to go somewhere into the darkness. She was pulling me outside, screaming, let's go there. Since I began reporting in Ukraine almost a decade ago, I've covered many horrific things. Pro-democracy protesters shot in Kyiv, the illegal annexation of Crimea, corpses strewn around fields after flight MH17 was downed by Russian-controlled forces, lives and communities ripped apart by Vladimir Putin's war. But few things are as disturbing as the theft of Ukraine's children. Over the past 15 months, huge numbers have been separated from their parents, stolen and taken to Russia. 
There they are handed to Russian families and given new identities, sometimes thousands of miles away from their homes. These so-called evacuations are made all the worse since they're dressed up in the language of humanitarianism and child protection as a rescue operation. Well, their narrative is very simple, that we're rescuing children. And this is the narrative that um, the main lady behind it, uh, Vova Belova, keeps repeating everywhere, that uh, we're, you know, we're doing uh, humanitarian work as opposed to criminal um, <laughs> actions. And of course, to some extent, they are rescuing children because it's just the fact that they're the perpetrators of the problems. I wouldn't call it rescuing if it is a criminal act. If the child is kidnapped and taken to a beautiful house, this does not make it any less criminal. And Russia is not a beautiful house, by the way. I first heard about Russia's abduction of children from a mother fleeing occupied territory. She'd been told her kids would be taken away from her if she refused to send them to a Russian-run school. And out of thousands of Ukrainian children taken to Russia, officials in Kyiv fear it could be up to 300,000. I soon learned about one special group of 31. These 31 children were from a city that horrified us with its suffering. For three weeks, Mariupol has been the loneliest, most dangerous place on earth. The strategic Ukrainian city is under relentless attack from Russia, and there are fears it could fall at any moment. None of her rescuers ever knew her name, and nor did the doctors who tried in vain to save mother and child. They were taken to Moscow, placed under the wing of the Kremlin, and then disappeared by the Russian state. I'm surprised to see tactics that I thought of as belonging to a distant period of history. Maybe I shouldn't be surprised, given that um, so much of what Putin has done over the last decade in particular has been a kind of replaying of old Soviet playbooks. The 31, like tens of thousands of other young Ukrainians, are victims of Putin's grand plan to wipe out a nation and its culture. That's what uh, the government is trying to to do to Ukraine, eliminate Ukraine, eliminate Ukrainian people as much as possible. And uh, with the kids, just, you know, wants them to become Russian. It was a warm spring day when I traveled to Riga, a bustling city beside the Baltic Sea. Families strolled in the park. Music was in the air. Riga is a typical European capital, packed with cafes, shops and electric scooters. It's easy to forget that Latvia only broke away from the Soviet Union in 1991. The nation has taken in tens of thousands of Ukrainian refugees since Russia launched its full-scale invasion last February. Among them is a man called Yevon, a single dad who arrived last year. I'd come to Riga to hear his remarkable story with my producer, Xavier Greenwood, and translator, Marina Matafanova. I headed to the city suburbs. We're just driving along Moscow Street in Riga, about 10, 15 minutes away from the old city. It's a uh, traditional, almost Soviet-style collection of uh, low-rise apartment blocks with uh, very green... Yevon was returning from work, 
So he greeted us by the entrance of his home, and after we'd removed our shoes, ushered us into a small bedroom in his flat. Looking around Yevon's room, one thing was instantly clear, how much he loved his kids. On the wall above his bed was a huge framed photo. It showed a family scene, Yevon, the proud father, with his hand on the head of his son, perched on a bike, while two younger daughters stood on pink scooters. For almost five hours, Yevon told a story that threatened to destroy that happy image. His home attacked and city destroyed. Weeks of captivity, torture. His adored children stolen by one of Putin's closest aides. Yevon's children were part of a group of 31 children, some as young as six and seven, who were snatched from Mariupol, a proud industrial city on the Sea of Azov that's been destroyed by Russia. My name is Mizhevi Yevgeny Vyacheslavovich. I'm 40 years old. I have three kids. Svetoslava is nine, Alexandra is seven, and Matvi is 13 years old. Yevon grew up in Mariupol in the last days of the Soviet Union. The only thing I liked about the Soviet Union is that if you get a sausage in a store, you get a real sausage. Even after Russian-backed separatists attacked Mariupol in 2015, he didn't have a strong view either way on Russia. Yevon served in the military, divorced his wife, and worked as a crane operator while bringing up his children. And as 2022 arrived, no one seemed too worried about the growing whispers of all-out war. There was a rumor, but I consulted different people. They told me everything would be fine. On the 22nd of February last year, he opened a cafe with a friend. They had ambitious plans for a chain. Two days later, Ukraine came under attack. Vladimir Putin has just addressed the Russian people moments ago, announcing what Putin called the start of a military special operation. He told Ukrainian troops to lay down arms and go home. Still, Yevon wasn't too concerned. We were used to explosions because the front line was already not far from the city. There was no panic. But within days, the children's school was hit. The port, home to half a million people, became a key target for Kremlin atrocities. Alarming news out of Ukraine. There are reports Russian missiles have struck a children's and maternity hospital in the city of Mariupol. A theater where more than a thousand people were sheltering has been destroyed. We don't know the death toll, but the world is assuming the worst. Yevon and his children couldn't find a way out of the city. They moved from basement to basement, grabbing food and sleep where they could. We woke up every morning at 4.45 because at 5.05 the aerial bombardment started. It lasted for an hour and a half, at most until 7.10. The children reacted calmly to the explosions. The main thing was to follow the safety rules, keep a distance from windows. It was boring, but I tried my best. But death was always close at hand. Yevon watched one family ripped apart in front of him. I saw how the father's legs were torn off. The mother was killed and the child was gasping, dying. I asked if the children saw this. 
not everything. They didn't see the turn of legs, but basically yes. You cannot blindfold them. In mid-March, Yevon and his children moved to a packed bomb shelter in a local hospital. As the fighting grew fiercer, life became even more fraught. There was a moment when people went out for water, literally two meters away from the shelter. They were killed. Three corpses. They were lying near the bomb shelter for a very long time. One had a hole in his head, the other in his stomach. No one cleaned it up because no one left the shelter. Then on the 7th of April, six weeks into the full-scale war, Russian soldiers arrived at their hiding place. Matvi ran up to me and said, Dad, the soldiers are here. I went out to find out who they were and what they wanted. One came down, the other stood on the stairs. They said, you have a half an hour to evacuate. The Chechens are coming after us and they will mop up the territory. The implication was clear. Chechen troops had a terrifying reputation as killers and rapists. So Yevon agreed to leave and the family was taken to a suburb of Mariupol. It felt like a different world. There was no war there. It simply wasn't there. There were Z signs on every house. Life was going on. People were busy with their work. Young Russians in white t-shirts with I love Russia badges ran up to us. Yet next came the notorious filtration, checking documents and phones to identify fighters, former soldiers and state officials. I didn't hide my military ID because I thought that they were reasonable people. They could have understood that I didn't participate in combat missions. They rubbed their hands and told me that I should go into the office to explain the documents and that I needed to leave the kids with somebody. When I asked how much time it would take, they said maybe two hours, maybe seven years. Yevon was taken to a tent, threatened with a beating like one he saw being given to a young man. Then he was arrested. Worst of all, he had to say goodbye to his children. They tied my hands, pulled a baseball cap over my face, and secured it with the tape. They told us that Chechens would knock all the testimonies out of us. It was scary. Everyone had heard a lot about the Chechens and their cruelty. We were taken somewhere. They opened the doors, put us against the wall, and the guy with the Chechen accent came in. He said that he would ask the questions. Those who answered incorrectly or lied would be stabbed with a knife in random body parts. Yevon was taken to Donetsk in occupied Ukraine, where he was stuffed into the first of a series of stifling, overcrowded cells. People tried not to talk to each other because there was such little air. The ventilation system of the cell couldn't cope with such a large number of people. Everyone sat in their pants because of the heat. We were like sardines in a can. Daily life became a new kind of horror. He was beaten, interrogated, starved, and even forced to run a gauntlet of baton-wielding guards. All this time, he didn't know where his children were or if they were even alive. Yevon was eventually transferred to an infamous Russian prison camp outside Donetsk city. If you want to lose weight, he wryly told us, go to Olenivka. 
At first, he was with dozens of people crammed into a six-person cell. Then he was taken somewhere even smaller, 29 people in a room designed for two. He learned to sleep standing on one leg. We slept everywhere. We slept on a bedside table hanging on the wall. The boys slept under the tables, slept under the benches, slept on the floor, slept on each other. There was no room. The only thing that kept him going was his children. This thought was in my head all the time. I cannot explain how it worked. You are just thinking that your aim is to survive and come back to your kids. After 45 days in Olenivka, Yevon was released without explanation. In the dead of night, he walked 30 kilometers back to Donetsk under a hail of Russian gunfire and finally made it to the police station. There, an officer told him that his children were no longer in Ukraine. She gave me my documents, but there was no birth certificate of my kids. I noticed it right away because all the other documents have a smaller size. I asked where the certificate were and was told that the children had flown to Moscow. Yevon is just one of many Ukrainians whose children have been stolen by Russia. Amid the fog of war, it's difficult to work out exactly how many families share his fate. Ukraine has confirmed data on almost 20,000 Ukrainian children deported by Russia. But Daria Harasimchuk, Ukraine's presidential advisor for children's rights, thinks the number is much higher. According to our calculations, we are looking at 200,000 to 300,000 children who could have been stolen by Russia. It's as if a city the size of Sunderland was taken from the UK. And this is just the children. Many adults have also been forced into Russia, while almost one-fifth of Ukraine's land is under occupation. This theft of children is among the most horrifying of Russia's war crimes in Ukraine. Yet the Kremlin openly publicizes these atrocities. Russians leave a lot of digital traces on the internet. They publish videos where they show that they are giving children into adoption and they do it openly, giving the names of children and the names of adopted parents. Daria Hersimchuk said Moscow abducts children using five known means. One, they kill the parents and take the orphan children into Russia. Two, they take children from parents who refuse to cooperate with pro-Kremlin officials in occupied regions. Three, they use the war and humanitarian crisis as cover to remove children. Four, they use the filtration system to arrest parents, then steal their children, like with Yevon. And five, they persuade parents in occupied regions to send children for a break to a summer camp and then refuse to let them return home. Now Tortoise has also discovered a sixth method this is information that I'm just starting to get. The Russians are doing large-scale medical commissions for children on the temporarily occupied territories. The doctors examine perfectly healthy children and diagnose them with strange illnesses and diseases where they say that the kid needs treatment. And then the child is forcibly taken into Russia for the so-called treatment. It's another addition to the sinister Russian playbook conducting medical examinations on children 
and then duping Ukrainian parents over the health of their kids in order to abduct them. Many stolen children end up in orphanages and are then handed to Russian families. But before this, there is often a spell in a summer camp. When you think of summer camps, you might think of the bucolic kind seen in Hollywood films, like the one I worked in one year in California, with fun activities during the day, songs around campfires at night, then sleeping under the stars. The Kremlin camps for Ukrainian children are very different. They are indoctrination centers. There are dozens across Russia. Absolutely all children are told from the beginning that their parents left them behind, gave them away, and that after the camp, they're not going to go back, but be adopted into a Russian family. Everything Ukrainian is forbidden. The children are not allowed to say that they are from Ukraine. They are under a lot of psychological pressure, and they are punished a lot for showing any Ukrainian identity. They start their day with the Russian anthem and other songs like Russia Go, You Can Do It. And if the children refuse to learn or sing them, they are punished. For not singing the anthem, they could be deprived of food, they could be put in the solitary room, they can be mistreated and sometimes even beaten up with sticks. They are humiliated. They have to work. Sometimes they have to clean the beaches, the facilities, and they are told that they are doing it for the other children. This is not in any way a recreational facility. Daria Harasimchuk told us about a small boy called Sasha who was separated from his mother over a year ago. He hasn't seen her since and doesn't know if she's still alive. When he's asked what is the most terrible thing that happened to him, he says that the Russians didn't even let him say goodbye to his mother. And there's nothing new about these tactics. All through its history, the Soviet Union used mass deportation both as a method of punishment, but also as a method of ethnic cleansing. I'm Anne Applebaum. I'm a staff writer for The Atlantic and an author of books about Soviet and East European history. Poles were removed from what had been Eastern Poland. The Balts were removed from the Baltic states in very large numbers, for example, both after the original invasions in, in 1939 and then again in 1945 in order to eliminate those populations, to weaken them, and to also prepare them to accept immigrants from Russia and from other parts of the Soviet Union, particularly in the case of the Baltic states. Decades researching the Soviet past, but increasingly she finds it converging with Putin's present. I'm surprised to see tactics that I thought of as belonging to a distant period of history on the other hand, maybe I shouldn't be surprised, given that so much of what Putin has done over the last decade in particular has been a kind of replaying of old Soviet playbooks. We asked experts from Russia, Ukraine and the West why the Kremlin is abducting children. All gave the same answer, to destroy Ukrainian identity. This is to my mind, as part of a larger project, which is to eventually remove Ukraine from the map and in the meantime to de-Ukrainianize or to, or to change the national identity of those regions of Ukraine that Russia occupies. Something we hoped was confined to the Soviet past has been revived as current reality for huge numbers of Ukrainians. If you look back at the history of the Gulag and the history of Soviet repression, 
you actually see many examples of children being separated from their parents, parents arrested, children sent to orphanages, sometimes their names and identities lost, other groups of people who had been deported, children winding up again in orphanages or in foster homes, losing track of their original parents. The treatment of children and the mistreatment of children, rather, was a central part of Soviet policy and a repressive policy towards either political dissidents or towards suspicious ethnic groups from the beginning to the end. And so I, I guess those are habits that were never lost. While Yevin was languishing in prison, he had no idea that his three children had been taken to Russia. At first, they were driven to a village near the border and held in a theatre. They were accompanied by a woman Yevon had asked to look after them as he was dragged off into detention, but she abandoned them. The three children put up posters in a bid to find their father before they were taken to an orphanage in occupied Donetsk and then to southern Russia. Then, one morning in late May, they found themselves among the 31 children from Mariupol flown to Moscow. They were tested for everything, even for syphilis. Do you understand? The children had a full medical examination. This isn't okay. The children were placed in a special sanatorium outside Moscow. It was set up, like many others, in Soviet times for families of workers. Yet this one was for people working in the Kremlin. And today, it's still under control of the Russian president. Children who have endured bombing and are afraid of explosions or firecrackers were forced to go to the disco parties. And these were loud and noisy discos. There were kids from 6 to 17 years. They were taken to watch movies in the cinema. The first film they were shown was about a military pilot. These are children who survived the war and saw it live. At the time, Yevon didn't know about any of this. He'd almost convinced himself his children would be back soon, until he talked to his mother. I still had some hope that they had really gone to a summer camp. We argued because she told me that the kids received one-way tickets. She described what summer camp was. I asked how he felt at this moment. I don't know what to tell you. I cannot answer, because I'm not ready to answer such a question. Like all parents, probably rage. Yevon began to plot how to get his children back. But in the meantime, he'd managed to speak to them. When they'd become separated, Yevon was able to sling a phone around his son's neck. It didn't work in Russia, but his son managed to trade it for one that did and then got hold of a SIM from a visitor to the camp. Matvi asked her for a SIM card, and she bought it for him. After that, we established a permanent connection. We were able to call each other at any time. This woman became the children's unlikely ally. She showed them Moscow. Despite the war, Moscow is a beautiful city. She took them to water parks. She was a friendly face, an elegant Russian woman in floaty dresses who even took the 31 children to an ice cream factory, like in a real summer camp. But this woman was not some kind of good Samaritan. Her name is Maria Lvova-Belova, and she's wanted for war crimes.
Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. How do you solve a crime in reverse when you believe that someone was murdered but have no clue who the victim was? We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. If it's possible, how are we going to do that? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. She's soft, she's feminine. She wears a lot of pastel colors, from what I can tell. Has to come across as somebody trustworthy, nice, lovely, sweet. I'm, I'm sure it's part of the image. This is Natalia Pelavina, a Russian playwright and opposition politician who fled to Latvia after being detained for an anti-war protest. She has observed Maria Lvova Belova soar through the ranks of Putin loyalists. She wasn't necessarily well-known, but as it turns out, she was very much a career person. She was rising quite rapidly within the the pro-Kremlin party. And just a couple of years ago, she was given this an important job, the Ambassador for Children. Lvova Polova is Putin's right-hand woman in the drive to take Ukraine's children and turn them into compliant Russians. She meets with her president regularly as his children's rights commissioner. Just 38 years old, Lvova Belova is barely old enough to remember the fall of the Soviet Union. She has five biological children, five adopted children, and guardianship over a further 13 children with disabilities who live in care homes. She's married to a priest, which kind of makes sense. Russian Orthodox Church is playing a significant role in what's going on right now in Ukraine. They're very pro-war. So it kind of all makes sense. But we didn't see much of her up until this point. I mean, she was somewhere, but she was largely in the shadow. And it's not until this whole situation with the children being abducted, being kidnapped from Ukraine came into light that we really started finding out more about her. To many Westerners, her carefully curated image is really dystopian. On state TV and social media, she is shown greeting children she claims to be orphans saved from war. She gives them soft toys and hugs before handing them to new families in places such as Siberia. It's all meant to um, show that this is all a good thing and that she's like a mother Russia greeting children back 
home, close to its bosom, and comforting them at, at its bosom. But many Russians see her differently. That's quite a convincing picture for a regular person. A nice, blonde, lovely Russian mother, very sweet and loving with the children. Those are staged um, things, um, theatrical to a degree, but I think they hit the target. Her public appearances are a form of image management for the Russian state and also for the ambitious Maria Lvova-Belova. Early morning, Novosibirsk, and once again, we are waiting for the kiddies with their adoptive parents. There's a lot of drive, anticipation, tears. Any moment now, the new residents of Novosibirsk region will get off the plane. She used to wear low-cut tops, miniskirts, heels and red lipstick. Now she dresses more demurely, often in religious headscarves. Her profile has surged since the International Criminal Court issued an arrest warrant for her earlier this year. She's charged with illegally deporting children from Ukraine. In a controversial interview with Vice News, she denied the accusations. Are you a war criminal? <laughs> it's funny. I'm a mother. That says it all. A war criminal? What are you talking about? Her arrest warrant is even used to fuel Kremlin propaganda. Well, their narrative is very simple, that we're rescuing children. And this is the narrative that um, the main lady behind it, Vova uh, Belova, keeps repeating everywhere, that uh, we're, you know, we're doing a humanitarian work as opposed to criminal um, <laughs> actions. And of course, to some extent, they are rescuing children because it's just the fact that they're the perpetrators of the problems. I wouldn't call it rescuing if it is a criminal act. If the child is kidnapped and taken to a beautiful house, this does not make it any less criminal. And Russia is not a beautiful house, by the way. Why did Maria Lvova Belova take such a special interest in the 31 children? The answer is chilling. She wanted a new one for her collection. Earlier this year, she talked to Vladimir Putin on TV about a boy called Philippe. You adopted a child from Mariupol, Putin asks. Yes, thanks to you, she replies. Is he little, asks Putin. No, she says. Now I know what it's like to be the mother of a child from Donbass. It's hard, but we love each other very much. Philippe was in the same group of stolen kids as Yevon's children. He had a legal guardian in Mariupol. Lvova Belova claimed he was found in a basement in the city, among a group abandoned by their parents. She said they spoke negatively about Putin and sang the Ukrainian national anthem. But after being handed over to families, their negativity turned into love for Russia. After her intervention, however, Yevon's children at least obtained a SIM card, and he was finally able to video call them. Of course, it was emotional. I hadn't seen my kids for a long time. Everything was fine, but they had bad clothes and bad haircuts. For the most part, they looked okay. Like kids from an orphanage. But it was just a temporary respite. A few days later, by now in June, he got a distraught call from his son. He said that two women had told them that they could either go to a foster family or to an orphanage. I asked about the option of going home. 
the women told the kids that Donetsk was under heavy shelling, so they couldn't let them go home. As if before there was no shelling. That was their official reason to keep children in Moscow. After we talked, he told the women that his dad would definitely come for them. They began to dissuade him in every possible way, saying his dad had no money to get to the Moscow. Yevon's mission suddenly became even more urgent. His son told him he had only five days to get his children back, or they might be given new identities, perhaps lost to him forever. I was looking for money wherever possible or not possible. I called friends, acquaintances, strangers, enemies, everyone. I collected a certain amount, but it wasn't enough even for a ticket. Another plan began to take shape. My godson sent me a link to a volunteers. He said that maybe they could help. I messaged them and explained the situation in detail. They called me back the same evening and told me that the issue had been resolved. Across Russia, groups of volunteers are helping Ukrainians get their children back. Given the consequences of defying Putin, their courage is immense. Yevon promised never to reveal the identities of the people who assisted him. But next morning, thanks to their help, Yevon was on his way to Moscow. This was a hugely dangerous thing to do. A former Ukrainian soldier traveling into Russia to take his children from a camp under direct control of the Kremlin. Picked up by a driver, Yevon was taken to the Russian border. He had hardly any money. He was carrying a bottle of water, two loaves of bread, and some cans of fish. There at the border, he waited and hoped. They gathered a group of people about my age. We were taken to the office. They tried to call us up to serve in their army. I told them that I wouldn't serve in Russia because I'm Ukrainian. I have a Ukrainian passport, I said. I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to my children. I have three kids. I have to pick them up from the summer camp. He told me that he also has three children and serves in the army. Then the abuse started again. They told us to undress and show our tattoos. They checked our phones and belongings and tried to find something incriminating. He spent six hours being questioned, knowing his hopes of saving his children depended on the whim of those Russian border guards. This time he was lucky. He was allowed to continue on his mission. His next steps were guided by the volunteers. He retraced his children's steps to Moscow. He was miraculously unharmed. Remember how we said he had five days to get to his kids before they would be adopted or taken into foster care? Yevon did it in two. He met a colleague of Maria Lvova Belova, along with a psychologist, and told them how his children were taken. He showed them photos and documents to prove they were his offspring. Just imagine a father having to beg the enemy who destroyed his home and locked him up in order to get his own children back. Yevon's children were forced to request that they be reunited with their own father in writing. Their simple letter read, I ask you to hand me over to the legal representative, namely the father. But with that out the way, after more than two months apart, 
the long-awaited moment finally happened. I was sitting, writing and signing papers in the office. I heard the voice of the girls, stopped writing, ran out, saw them and grabbed them in my arms. Then Matvi came. I also took him in my arms, held the three of them and hugged them. I don't know how to describe it. It was an emotional meeting. For Yevon, as he recalled that moment of reunion, there was a simple truth. He had his beloved children back in his arms. I live in the present. Yesterday was yesterday. Today is today. If my children hadn't been taken, maybe I wouldn't be here. It is impossible to know what could have happened in Ukraine. Maybe I could have been killed with a stone. Nobody knows our fate, what will happen tomorrow. Therefore, I try to live today. Yevon is fortunate to have survived and escaped with his family to safety. Yet life in a foreign land remains tough for the single father. He works long hours in a garage, struggles to learn Latvian, and dreams of having his own home again. I have nowhere to go because my house is destroyed. My kids don't want to hear about Ukraine. When the kids were in a refugee camp, they were told that Kyiv would be conquered. Matvi was afraid to move to Kyiv because he was told there would be a second Mariupol. For survivors of Putin's war, there is trauma, especially for those torn away from their family and if still too young to fully understand what happened to them. Near the end of our conversation, Yevon suddenly mentioned something that had happened a few hours before we met. Yesterday, Sasha came to me at night. She was shaking and talking nonsense. I couldn't wake her up. She couldn't hear me. So I'm afraid of the repercussions. Nobody knows what will be next. He is plagued by a horrible fear that something strange was done to his children's minds inside that Kremlin camp. Before, Sviata had something similar. We had just arrived in Latvia. She was pulling my hand. She was trying to go somewhere into the darkness. She was pulling me outside, screaming, let's go there. It's weird stuff. It's kind of a small things, but as a parent, you notice it. You see the changes and you see it's not normal. It's not just some bad dream that came to her mind. I couldn't wake the child up. I even pulled her cheeks. She was unconscious. When Sveta did it for the first time, I was so scared that I even called an ambulance. It sounds like the plot to a science fiction film. Daria Harasimchuk told us she's seen no evidence that Ukraine's returned children have been brainwashed. But Yevon's fear is real. It torments him. And it shows the terrible legacy of Russia's actions, even on those that survive. You might wonder why Russia was willing to give Yevon his children back. Perhaps it seems bizarre for many listeners. Yet Putin poses to his people as the saviour of Ukraine. He claims to be protecting the nation from supposed Western attack and Nazi insurgents as he smashes it up with bombs and troops. In Putin's distorted narrative, 
these children are orphans saved from war. So when a Ukrainian family manages to jump over every hurdle, track down their children and demand their return, the Russian state will, sometimes, comply. One of the curiosities of Putin's dictatorship is that he likes to have the veneer of legal cover, even for his most barbaric actions. Yevon saved his children, but the Kremlin, in its propaganda, still pretends to be behaving like saints. I was pissed off recently by an interview with Lvova Belov. She talked about how she'd met me, as if she personally organized my trip from Mariupol to Moscow and helped me financially. I wanted to ask her, where is your financial support? According to her, she is a hero, and I am a bad person who tells everyone how she stole my children. Elise Evan is back with his children. The other children in that group of 31 were less lucky. When we were already in Latvia, Matvi's friend called and said all the children, except for mine, had been adopted in Moscow. Midway through my interview with Yevon, he reached into a folder and handed me a couple of green pieces of paper. It's a memo written by Russian-backed officials in occupied Ukraine. It describes the temporary departure of 31 children conducted, quote, for the purpose of recovery and it carefully lists their names and dates of birth. This is Philippe, adopted by Maria Lvova-Belova. This is Bogdan. He was a friend of Philippe, whose adoptive family told the TV cameras how well he settled in, even befriending Russian soldiers. In reality, Bogdan secretly contacted a Ukrainian lawyer, saying that his papers had been taken off him, but he wanted to return home. He fled more than a thousand kilometers to the Belarus border, only to be caught in sight of his homeland and handed back. Next time Bogdan was paraded on Russian television, he had dark circles under his eyes and a fresh military haircut. His whereabouts are currently unknown. Then there are the rest of the 31. Most have been nameless, until now. Anastasia, 17 years old. Ilya, 15. Anna, 16. Philippe, 17. Anna, 12. Anna, 15. Alexander, 16. Sophia, 17. Bogdan, 17. Mikita, 18. Diana, 17. Alexei, 8. Artem, 18. Carillo, 16. Serhi, 17. Alexandra, 16. Anastasia, 14. Danilo, 18. Svatoslava, 9. Matvi, 13. Sophia, 15. Yulia, 18. Arena, 15. Danilo, 13. Alexander, 18. Ilya, 14. Ivan, 14. Diana, 19. Volodymyr, 13. Irina, 14. And finally, Alexandra, just seven years old. Yevon's story is remarkable. As a Ukrainian, He's driven, like so many others, 
by love of his country. As a father, he's driven by the deepest love of all, for his children. Yet the tragic reality is that many of the 31, along with tens of thousands more Ukrainian children, may never be reunited with their families. Stolen by the Kremlin, lost in Russia forever. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Slow Newscast from Tortoise. It was written and reported by me, Ian Burrell. It was produced and co-written by Xavier Greenwood. Additional reporting was by Kate Backlitskaya. Sound design was by Tom Birchall. And the editor was Jasper Corbett. With thanks to Marina Matafanova, Denis Lubimov, Les Beely, and special mention to Save Ukraine, an organization that rescues Ukrainian children from Russia. If you enjoyed this episode of the Slow Newscast and want to support the journalism that we do at Tortoise, you can become a member for £60 a year. Being a member means you'll receive early and ad-free access to all our award-winning audio journalism, as well as tickets to live events, newsletters, and much more. Just go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash slowdown. Tortoise. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Does what's going on in the American election scare and bemuse you in equal measure? Want to know what Biden and Trump are up to without tearing your hair out? Then you need to listen to American Friction, the brand new podcast about the countdown to the big vote in November from the makers of Oh God, What Now?, The Bunker, and Paper Cuts. Every Friday, we'll speak to leading experts and blockbuster commentators from the United States to explain the latest news and the big issues behind the vote. That's American Friction with me, Jacob Jarvis. Me, Chris Jones. And me, Nikki McCann Ramirez. Out every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts.